Welcome to Beyond BIM. Over the last decade, huge advances have been made in digitalization. But productivity growth has slowed in all major economies. So counterintuitively, it is those sectors that are most intensive users of information and communication technologies that appear to have made the least increase in productivity. Now, how do we account for this paradox? Some blame the 2008 financial crisis, but we have seen, based on historical data, that this decline predates the crash. Others think that it's a dispersion problem, large companies being let down by a long tail of inefficient, small to medium enterprises. Then again, there is another argument saying that this is perhaps an issue with measurement, that we're just not calculating this the right way. And thus, digital transformation is, at large, failing up to live to its hype, at least as far as productivity gains are concerned. This is also referred to by academics as the productivity paradox. If, as research suggests, a lack of business model innovation is the main culprit, then we need a way of making that change happen. And Dr. Chander Valu certainly thinks so. In today's episode, I speak with Chander Valu, a senior lecturer at the University of Cambridge in the engineering department and a fellow of Selwyn College. Chander has an interest in innovation and technology management with a specific focus on exploring the consequences of business model innovation and the implications for productivity and strategic decision-making. And now let's take a listen to what Chander has to say on business model innovation. Let's just start off. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself, Chander, and what led you to your interest into business model innovation in the first place. First of all, uh, thank you very much, Erica. Uh, pleased to be here today uh, on this podcast. Um, so I, I, I'm Chander Velu. I head up the uh, business model innovation research group at the Institute for Manufacturing at the engineering department at the University of Cambridge. Um, I became particularly interested in the business model innovation area uh, back when I studied the emergence of electronic trading platforms in uh, the banking industry. Um, so the, the the issue was there's a lot of uh, uh, trading of uh, securities, so bonds and equities in, in, the, in the financial markets. Uh, and um, these uh, markets were disrupted uh, quite significantly by the emergence of internet technology. So the, the idea being uh, these the banks that were acting as intermediaries between the buyers and sellers uh, effectively were being disrupted by a new technology, internet technology, whereby new business models were emerging, trying to disintermediate the banks, letting the uh, the buyers and sellers transact directly between themselves. And there was a whole plethora of different business models from that extreme to uh, keeping the existing telephone-based trading system, uh, but uh, migrating that to an electronic interface. And therefore, I became very intrigued by how such a new technology could transform uh, a particular industry and its underlying business models. So that's where uh, my whole interest in business model innovation uh, started. And from then on, I have uh, moved to studying various different technologies and the implications for business model innovation more generally. That's fascinating. And from 
that fascination into business model innovation, you then often also talked about in your own research about the productivity paradox. Now, could you shed some more light on what is the productivity paradox? Yes. So uh, starting off from uh, my interest in business model innovation, I started reflecting on a major economic issue um, in the sense that the uh, productivity growth rates have been slowing down. So productivity is a very uh, a generic term, but in a very simple um, uh, way to understand it is the output per unit of input, so to speak. So effectively, we're looking at an economy, what is the, pro- the, the, the value added that is produced by the economy? Uh, one can look at it in terms of gross value added by the economy or even the GDP, the gross domestic product of the economy, and what did it take to produce it, i.e., what kind of, how much labor, how much capital was used, and, and so on and so forth. And so that, uh, that ratio of the output to input is what people typically call uh, productivity. And uh, it turns out that over the last decade or so, um, this uh, productivity ratio has been, the growth rate of the productivity ratio has been slowing down in virtually all major economies. Um, and the UK in particular has experienced a significant slowdown compared to other major economies. And and this is uh, quite intriguing. And and this is what economists call the productivity paradox. Why should it be that that despite the emergence of new technologies like digital, various digital technologies, the growth rate in productivity seems to slow down? So that's the the paradox. Uh, Now, it turns out there are various uh, possible explanations for this uh, particular productivity paradox. So some people talk about the issue of measurement, i.e., are we measuring the right thing in a world where, um, uh, in a digital world where things are being given away for free. So if you look at what Google does with the search engine, it gives the value proposition away for free and charges uh, for something else, somewhere else. Um, and that's uh, an issue. Or it could be dispersion, i.e. large firms are doing much better than smaller firms and therefore uh, that could explain it. Or it could be a skills mismatch, i.e. there is a difference between the kind of skills we need in a digital world compared to what's out there. Or some people have talked about the financial crisis having, uh, working its way through. Now, I reflected on this and said that all of these are possible, uh, but there could also be an issue around business model innovation, whereby if firms were to adopt these digital technologies and just patch them into existing processes, but do not think about redesigning the overall system or the business model, the architecture of the industry, then that could also result in slowdown in productivity. And that's where my interest of uh, looking at this idea of the productivity paradox and business model innovation come together. So then that quite nicely leads on to, obviously, the talk about business model innovation. Uh, As you mentioned, there's been a lot of interest in that topic by researchers and technology providers alike. So for the novice, how would you explain business model innovation? Yes. um, So in order to understand what a business model innovation is, it might be useful to just define what I mean by a business model in the first place. Um, So I like to use a very simple uh, conceptualization of a business model. So what I call the four V's. Uh, So what exactly is the customer value proposition? Um, How is that value being created and delivered? Um, What is the mechanism to capture some of that value? So what exactly is the revenue and cost architecture uh, for the uh, for the organization, uh, and finally, what I call the value network, i.e. 
what are the other firms and stakeholders that are required in order to be able to create and capture that value? So that's, that's what uh, the business model is, the four Vs, the value proposition, value creation and delivery, the value uh, capture mechanism and the value network. Uh, now, when we talk about business model innovation, then we are talking about changes to these components, i.e. either the relationship between the components or the change in the components themselves so either four Vs. And that's what a, a business model innovation is all about. So let me give you an example. If we take the, um, the airline industry, so the conventional airline business model uh, of the large uh, carriers is to sell uh, tickets in such a way that they maximize the number of passenger miles on the aircraft, so to speak. So, and the typical business model is, you know, you kind of make uh, a significant return on your business class fares, but you may either break even or even make a loss on your economic fares, but you maximize the, uh, the the passenger miles, so to speak, on on and the load of your your aircrafts. Uh, now it turns out that the low cost airline business model is very very different to the conventional model uh, because what they have done is to effectively change the the, the proposition. Uh, they targeted people, particularly in the U.S. It started off in the U.S. with Southwest Airlines. They targeted people who would ordinarily drive uh, between cities. And said, well, you know, why don't you you fly? It's much uh, more convenient, uh, is easier, and so forth. So therefore, the value proposition is quite different from uh, driving. Uh, now, in addition to that, how they created and captured value was very different because instead of charging the passengers uh, an airfare, uh, they effectively made a deal with uh, some of the providers of services in the airports where they were taking the passengers to. So, for example, if you went to a particular uh, airport, you needed to perhaps rent a car, buy some lunch, buy a newspaper. So therefore, the idea was to share some of that revenue, so to speak. So the objective now of the airline is to maximize the number of passengers they brought from point A to point B, because they were earning the revenue somewhere else. Now, then the, in order to maximize the number of passengers, you cut the price down. You cut the price down to almost, um, you know, close to zero or uh, very, very, very cheap. Um, and in order to make this work, you need a whole new value network, i.e. you need different partners in these different, um, let's say, um, airports in order to make this model work. Uh, now, therefore, if you look at the traditional business model of an airline compared to the low-cost business model, those uh, uh, propositions in terms of the uh, four Vs change quite significantly and therefore it's an innovation to the business model and that's what uh, business model innovation is all about. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. So one thing that I'm curious to hear more from you is then what is the difference between, this could be a whole episode on its own I guess, between business model innovation and strategy? Oh, yeah, this is a very, very important uh, question. So as uh, I, I, strategy is all about contingent planning. Uh, so if you're saying, what do I do when uh, the market outside changes? So the market outside could change because of customer preferences. It could change because of technological change. It could, be cha- it could, it could change because of regulation and so on and so forth. So strategy is the formulation of a contingent plan to say, what am I going to do? Where is my value going to be created? And how am I going to position myself in a particular marketplace in order to provide a proposition? Now, the business model is the go-to-market 
uh, approach, i.e. the go-to-market strategy is what the business model is about. So for any particular chosen strategy, there could be multiple business models, particularly in a digital world. This is what is happening. That's why it makes it very uh, uh, interesting because for uh, different strategic choices, you have multiple business models that could deliver that strategy. And the go-to-market approach is what the business model is about, the, the four Vs that we talked about. Then there's another bit to this whole idea to say once I've chosen a business model, then I need to tactically optimize my operations. And this is what happens in a lot of large organizations. As they grow bigger and bigger, they tend to organize themselves functionally in order to optimize the particular function and the operations for a chosen business model. So therefore, there's a link now uh, between business model, uh, sorry, strategy, which is the contingent plan, and what are you going to do? Uh, the business model, which is around how do you design the proposition to go to market, i.e. what exactly is the value proposition, value creation, the value capture, the network mechanism. And then you optimize by functionally uh, and operationally improving the efficiency of the business model. And for each strategy that's chosen, there could be multiple business models. And for each business model, there could be multiple ways in which you organize your operations, uh, particularly in a digital world that enables this different configuration architectures to, to come about. And uh, uh, that's where the relationship between strategy, business model, and tactics are, are, are important. That's interesting. And if we look at some of the challenges of realizing business model innovation with technology, what would that be? What are some of the things that you're coming across? Yeah, so one of, one of the big challenges is um, the notion of ownership of the business model. We talked about the idea of strategy formulation, business models, and tactics. And um, as organizations grow bigger and bigger, what happens is there are senior management that is involved in strategy formulation, and then there are uh, people and managers who are in charge of optimizing the operations or the functions, but nobody ends up owning the, the business model, so to speak. So, there, so therefore, there is uh, what I'm calling a, a chasm, uh, a, govern, a governance chasm, a business model ownership and governance chasm. And, and that is one of the big issues in uh, thinking about business models because effectively what happens is each unit tends to adopt digital technologies to improve their own uh, operational efficiency and the and the and the uh, and their own functions, uh, but do not rethink uh, the design of the of the business model itself. So, therefore, for for one of the big challenges in as digital technologies become more prevalent is how do you align your strategy to your business models and therefore your tactics. Uh, and quite often, this could become very easily misaligned because each each uh, individual function is thinking about optimizing its operations. And this is what I call the piecemeal approach to uh, adopting uh, digital technologies. And that piecemeal approach to adopting digital technologies then causes uh, a big problem in terms of being effective in adopting uh, um, uh, digital technologies and uh, enabling uh, transformation uh, of, of the 
of the business model. Now, related to this is the notion of do we really understand the interconnectedness uh, between different functions as, as new digital technologies get adopted? And that, uh, that lack of understanding of the interdependence between different functions of, 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 of a business model is also another big issue in terms of uh, business model transformation. And, and thirdly, I think, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a cognitive uh, element to this as well, where senior management often um, are prone to think that a particular business model that they have chosen had, has been successful. And sometimes this, these business models have been successful for a long time, and therefore they have the notion that that is the proper way to do business, so to speak. Um, and when you are, when that cognitive framing becomes very embedded within the organization, then it's very difficult to see the opportunities that arises as a result of new uh, technologies. So therefore, there's a cognitive challenge as well among senior management to say, I may not even realize uh, there is an opportunity because I framed uh, my business in a particular way and therefore uh, continue to improve the efficiency of the existing business despite new technologies coming on board. Uh, and therefore, this cognitive issue in terms of how do you refresh uh, senior management's thoughts about what new business models could arise as a result of digital technologies is another big challenge. Really interesting, the notion of this piecemeal approach that you just mentioned. So I can certainly draw comparison with certain sectors that have a piecemeal approach to technology. I'm sure this is probably the same in some other sectors, but the first one that comes to mind is construction. For myself, given that that's also my background and the research I've done is within that domain, but are there any other sectors that you're seeing have a piecemeal approach to technology adoption and maybe are more are less likely to go down the route of business model innovation? Or is this kind of irrespective? It doesn't matter which sector we're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, it, it matters in terms of the sectors uh, we're talking about, but uh, a couple of examples might might illustrate this uh, this problem, so to speak. Um, so, for example, um, we were uh, talking to one of the you know, major industrial uh, multinational um, based in the U.S., um, and uh, one of their businesses is to sell um, furnace filters. So these are the filters that are put into, into buildings in order to filter the air circulation within the building, either as a heating system or a cooling system. It, it filters out the air uh, through the ceiling and so on and so forth. There's typically a filter there. Um, now, it turns out uh, that this uh, company is, is a big manufacturer of uh, such, um, uh, such technologies, so to speak, as, as such uh, furnace filters. But as new technologies have come on board, there was a reasoning that what customers want is not necessarily to buy these furnace filters. What they want is clean air in, in their buildings, on their houses, and so on and so forth. So this, uh, the, the organization actually um, uh, put in a certain um, sensors into the filters uh, so that they then charge the customers a subscription uh, and um, and are in charge of changing those filters and ensuring that the air in these office buildings, let's say, are uh, constantly clean. Now, it turns out that for such a business model to work, the objective 
objective is to minimize the number of times you change the filters, so to speak, right? Because you're getting paid a subscription by the customer and therefore you want to minimize the number of times that you need to change the filters because that's what's going to maximize your profits. But the manufacturing part of the business is incentivized to maximize the, the production of filters because that's what minimizes their cost. Uh, you, you need to scale up the manufacturing in order to be able to reduce the cost of uh, each furnace filter. Uh, and here is the, the classic example of the piecemeal approach because one part of the business has got a uh, adoption of a technology that needs a completely different uh, value creation capture mechanism. But another part of the business, uh, the manufacturing part, is completely misaligned because they are incentivized to reduce the cost and increase the volume. The very fact that if you go up to the manufacturing uh, section of the business and say, well, actually, you know, you don't need to manufacture as many or you don't even need to manufacture any for next month uh, is counterintuitive to the whole idea of the, the underlying change in the business model and because of this new technologies coming on board. So this, this kind, that's one example. Uh, another example is is, um, you know, uh, we, we have seen, for example, the emergence of additive manufacturing technologies. So people uh, say that additive manufacturing technologies uh, for 3D printing and so on and so forth is a substantial change in the way manufacturing works and could possibly enable, um, let's say, more distributed manufacturing, i.e. you manufacture closer to where the customer is because um, it is much more efficient, the customer can get the parts faster and, and, and so on and so forth. But it turns out that um, a lot of organizations may not think about those kinds of new business models, but they'll think about how do I adopt these additive manufacturing technologies in order to improve the efficiency of my existing manufacturing processes in order to hold stocks, let's say, uh, for spare parts of, um, uh, of various industries, whether it's the aerospace industries uh, or the, the, let's say, the automotive industry or even consumer durables. The underlying model is to manufacture these spare parts, hold them in stock and make a return on them as opposed to saying, well, why don't I, I, I transform the business model in to a model where there's much more distributed manufacturing. I manufacture close to where the customer is because the technology is there, but that's where the piecemeal approach comes in because you're adopting one technology in order to improve a part of the process, but not necessarily rethinking the redesign. And that's where we see a lot of these kinds of um, issues arising uh, in terms of digital transformation. And if we look at the... Um ingredients that make up for a successful digital transformation. Based on your research, you're kind of hinting at business model innovation. Are there other aspects we should be aware of? Definitely. I think um, one of the important things, I think, in, in, in this kind of business model um, uh, transformation issues is the softer elements. Um, so quite often, um, people and managers can measure and manage the hard, uh, tangible assets, so to speak. So, you know, when we talk about technology, we tend to talk about the machines um, and uh, all, all the things that the machines can do uh, because that is a tangible asset, i.e. you can actually see it, you can feel it, and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, it turns out that actually in order to execute some of these kinds of changes, 
the softer capitals are quite important, i.e. the intangible capital, the human capital, i.e. what kind of skills, what kind of people. Do we have people that really understand and have the knowledge about this digital technology? Do they they have a holistic understanding of it? Uh, What about the information capital, i.e., is the information flowing appropriately within uh, within the organization, across the organization, across the ecosystem, as well as linking with the customers? Now, these kinds of new technologies enable a complete change in terms of how the information flow would happen and the, the ability to um, uh, uh, receive information uh, and, and adjust and uh, embed it into a continuous adjustment process, so to speak. So is the information system and the information capital appropriate uh, for these organizations as, as they think about new digital technologies. And, and, and thirdly, I think it is about leadership, i.e. what I call the organizational capital and the culture of the organization. Is the, is the leadership team embedding a sense of an empowered culture within the organization? Um, are people uh, allowed to test ideas and even some of these ideas may fail, but it is an, that kind of empowered uh, culture and team working that is important. So I think one of the, the, the key ingredients that quite often is forgotten in some of these digital transformation initiatives is we tend to focus our attention on the measurable uh, elements, i.e. the hard technology, as opposed to, well, actually we need a complementary set of assets, which is uh, what I'm calling intangible capital and, and paying attention on building up uh, uh, the, 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 the competencies and the effectiveness of those intangible capital is just as important if we want to think about tra- digital transformation and, and, and business model innovation. And the other thing that we hear quite often is, of course, platform business models. And they have seemed to have scaled from tech startups into various different sectors, from retail, mobility, travel, aviation. Is this an innovative business model or is it even considered innovative anymore? I I think it is. Um, I think um, this kind of business model has come about partly because of the digital architecture. So as I mentioned, um, I got interested in this whole business model innovation area because of the emergence of electronic platforms in the financial markets. Now, the financial markets uh, were quite advanced in terms of the adoption of some of these digital architectures and so on and so forth. And, and they tried to move some of the, uh, the, uh, the underlying business model. Not, not, not that the incumbent firms did it. It was forced upon them by uh, some of the new entrants coming in because if I'm an incumbent organization, I typically don't want to change something unless I need to. Uh, And if I'm making some um, healthy profits, why would I need to change? Uh, So the the, the idea of these platform uh, business models have been around for some time. It, 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 um, you know, quite quite early on emerged uh, in the uh, the financial markets with uh, trading of uh, securities and and so on and so forth. Uh, Now, it turns out that over time, uh, they have matured. Um, The principal um, new business models that we have seen is predominantly in the business to consumer market. So you see all the talk about the Amazons of this world or the Ebays of this world, or even more recently when we see uh, the emergence of sharing business models like Uber and so on and so forth, that are effectively platforms. So effectively what we're doing is we're trying to match buyers and sellers um, uh, 
in, 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 a, in a digital uh, architecture, so to speak, right? Um, and, and quite often they're multi-sided. So I think that we have seen now, whether we understand it enough is still um, an, an issue. How do we think about the structure of these business models uh, in terms of, um, you know, if you look at these platform business models, they can be thought of in terms of layers, i.e. what exactly is the, the content layer, the service layer, um, the, 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 the device layer, and the network layer. So the question is, does a firm need to, integrate across all of these layers to what, why does it need to integrate or not? Uh, what about its horizontal architecture, i.e. across any of these layers, how much assets should it have uh, to own and how much should it enable others, so to speak? And, and that is the business model design challenge in a lot of these platforms, and it's evolving. I, I, as we see a lot of these organizations changing the way they operate, integrating or not integrating, enabling, and so on and so forth. So that, that's, that, in that sense, I think the notion of a business model within a platform uh, uh, architecture is still uh, very much relatively new from understanding the, the theoretical concepts as well as the strategic issues around design. Now, the other area, I think, where uh, we have yet to see the development of some of these uh, platforms and big transformation is in the B2B market. Um, and that we are beginning to see the development of some of these platform business models in, in, in so-called B2B uh, marketplace. So for example, if you look at uh, GE uh, or even uh, Siemens, uh, GE provides this platform called Predix. Uh, Siemens provides a, a similar platform called Mindsphere. So the idea is if you're selling a lot of these machines uh, to organizations, you know, whether it's a factory or um, uh, a plane or a, a uh, a turbine engine and, and so on and so forth, um, there is an opportunity because some of these machines are integrating with each other, i.e. they're talking to each other because of the digital architecture. Um, and there is a move to say, right, can we actually bring some of that data and integrate it into a platform uh, type uh, business model, a platform architecture, so that we understand better how to optimize these this, uh, different, um, uh, let's say, machines, and what are the new types of propositions that we can provide to our customers as a result of integrating some of these machines and having a better understanding of uh, the data that is coming through. And then on, on, the, on top of that layer, we are beginning to have a better grip of how to um, optimize uh, and also learn using uh, AI and machine learning uh, techniques, so to speak, because of the richness of the data. So it is increasingly uh, a complex issue because then you also get into the same problem that I identified area in the consumer space to say, huh, how, do you, how do I design this business model? Which layer should I be playing uh, uh, in? Uh, what is the optimal vertical and horizontal architecture that I need? And because of the ownership of the data combined with the physical assets, you, we're getting into a, a different kind of issue to say, do how much of the physical assets do I need to own? How much of the, of, of, of the digital assets do I need to own? And that could transform the industry architecture in a lot of these uh, industries. And that's something that we are beginning to see happen and is going to unfold more and more. And, and that's where these platform uh, business models are still considered to be quite innovative um, in some of these B2B space. And uh, you mentioned Siemens and GE. Would you say that these are the leaders in the B2B 
uh, front, or these are just examples? I, I think there are examples. There, there are uh, co- quite a few um, uh, ways in which other firms are beginning to think about coming into the space. Uh, but I think um, uh, the, the GE and Siemens one is an interesting one because they, they, their, their proposition was they, they were selling hard um, you know, machines, so to speak, you know, in factories and in um, uh, aircrafts and uh, turbines and, and so on and so forth. So the way they thought about it is to say, even if I were to be able to optimize a very, very small component um, of how these machines perform and and if I'm able to extract some of that value from the customer in terms of the improvement, um, then it's an it's a it's a it's a valuable proposition, um, so to speak. I.e., there's a new business model that can emerge at the back of that. But the challenges are also quite fascinating because the issue around who owns the data, i.e., whose data it is, and who can manage it, and who can and and, and some of these new value propositions come from combining data um, across different uh, asset classes, um, and if if the data are owned by different parties, what is the basis upon which we are going to combine the data in order to create new value propositions and whose value is it and how do I capture it is all um, still up in the air, so to speak, you know, in terms of how to how to think about this kind of problems. Um, there are other examples of these kinds of platform models emerging. So if you look at, um, let's say, if you look at um, even... Um, a firm like Tyson Group, right, uh, in the in the lifts business. So uh, traditionally, the lifts that are, are put into um, uh, buildings are, are quite often uh, optimized within that that building, but. Increasingly, it's possible for uh, some of these um, lifts to be optimized across buildings or across geographies. So, for example, if a lift is put in Beijing in China and it's it's moving up and down and it's it's learning uh, about how to optimize the movement of those uh, lifts uh, because of changes in weather patterns or because of the flow of people and, and so on and so forth, that same learning can then be used to optimize a set of lifts in New York, so to speak. Um, um, and, and that's where the kind of platform architecture comes in because we're collating all this data and it's then helping different um, parties um, uh, to optimize uh, some of their, um, uh, their assets and, and so on and so forth and in the process create new value, so to speak. So uh, the example of GE Siemens is an, is, is an example, but there are lots of other organizations thinking about this kind of platform business models uh, in, in, uh, in order to uh, improve and create new value and new business models as well. And you also touched upon AI, and many many of us are hearing, uh, particularly at the senior board level, discussions about incorporating AI, and some of this, you might argue, is a piecemeal approach, but um, can you describe maybe some examples uh, in terms of applying this emerging technology and incorporating business model innovations? Yeah, I think um, I think AI is a fascinating topic, um, and I think it is um, it is not uh, as clearly understood. I think uh, yet um, uh, for several reasons, um, in, in the sense that I mean, we, we see a simple application, not simple, but it's it's a pretty complex application in by a, a firm like Uber, right? So effectively, what is happening is they're collating all this data, and in fact, trying to uh, predict uh, where uh, future customers are going to be, so therefore they can optimize um, uh, their 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 assets, so to speak. Uh, now, I think where we are today is very much still 
uh, an optimization of um, uh, the existing data as opposed to the ability for some of these machines to actually learn and 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 um, be much much more proactive or predictive and 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 so on and so forth. We are, we are moving there, but it, it's still uh, relatively slow. But I think I think the challenge is um, so if, if you look at a firm like Uber, they're saying now, well, you know what, the next generation is for me to think about automated cars, so to speak. Right? Today, I'm I'm using a uh, uh, somebody else's car in order to deliver my service. Why don't I think about cars that are autonomous, so to speak, you know, and, and the drive? Now, autonomous cars requires an element of intelligence um, that is quite different, and therefore, there's a lot of AI um, uh, and machine learning technologies that are being uh, developed, so to speak, in order to be able to deliver that kind of uh, uh, proposition. But I think I think the big challenge is still uh, coming back to the idea of a business model is we have made machines intelligent uh, to some extent, right? So some a lot of these initiatives on AI and machine learning and, and so on and so forth are making the machines intelligent in order to be able to optimize and learn and, and so on and so forth. But if we don't then have the complementary asset of the business models themselves also being intelligent, so to speak, i.e. as we change the nature of the machines and the way people work on those machines, uh, and if the machines are becoming more and more intelligent, then it is a natural question to ask that is you need the business model to also change um, in order for it to fit the new intelligent machine, so to speak. Um, and that is the that is where the challenge comes in because there is a risk that we may go back, going back to this piecemeal approach, where we use some of this AI machine learning technologies in order to optimize existing assets and processes, uh, but not really think about redesigning the business model because if the business models themselves are not intelligent and can't adapt and adopt fast enough, um, you will have a mismatch between the in level of intelligence of the machines and the business model that is used in order to complement those machines. And that's where we are not going to get the full benefit. So this comes back to the issue of the productivity problem. Um, and, and it's going to become even worse when we, and the pace at which these machines are going to become intelligent increases, but the rate at which our business models are transforming is not fast enough. And, and I think you one requires a different type of intelligence uh, to transform business business models compared to uh, making uh, uh, machines intelligent. And, and that's where some of these kinds of um, uh, challenges may, may arise. I feel like we've covered so many interesting topics that um, I'm keen to learn even more on the topic itself. So um, for our listeners, if they want to find out more about your research work and what you've done today, where can they find out more on that? Yeah, I've uh, I've got a, a, a website on um, the Institute for Manufacturing at the Cambridge University Engineering Department's uh, page, uh, where I tend to put um, a lot of my research outputs there, including um, um, uh, both um, uh, academic papers uh, as well as managerial and uh, white papers and policy-related papers. Um, so that's a, a, a one avenue, and there's an obvious 
various other um, working papers there as well as you know um, podcasts and uh, interviews and, and so on and so forth. So that's a that's one place to start. Uh, but there is an increasing uh, number of researchers working on broadly this topic from different uh, angles, and uh, I think you know that's uh, again a um, uh, a rich uh, source of avenue to to learn more about um, uh, these kinds of uh, uh, issues. And and I think uh, from a government perspective, I think. Um, there are a lot of uh, uh, policy papers these days uh, trying to look at the challenges around transforming uh, business models you know, as, we, as we think about the adoption of 5G and additive manufacturing and sensor-based technologies. Lots of governments, the US government, the Euro- European Union, the UK government have been publishing various uh, policy-related papers as well. And I think that's, again, another uh, rich source of um, uh, avenue to, to learn more. Okay, thank you. And finally, I would probably go and just ask, based on your experience as a researcher and an academic, what advice would you give to early career researchers wishing to make an impact in their field? I think um, for early career researchers, I think what is important is to find a, a big issue, so to speak. Um, you know, you need to be passionate about a, a big issue. What what exactly is a uh, some level of uh, either societal problem, uh, um, you know, be it uh, for a firm or for an economy or for an, or for for individuals? What what exactly is a big problem? Um, and then uh, once that big problem is identified and you one you need to be passionate about it uh, one needs to then formulate a series of uh, uh, research questions that can be addressed um, uh, to to contribute to a better understanding or making progress uh, on, on on that particular problem and, and for these researchers to have a a systematic program of research for themselves so to speak right to say oh this is the the big problem um, I'm, I'm very interested in to be able to contribute uh, there are different aspects to this problem uh, this particular aspect is what I, I'm really really keen um, and and then to focus the attention and say right okay if, in order to address the problem uh, there are a number of research questions that I can uh, look at some of it uh, it depends on the type of researcher you are right so some some people may like to tackle a problem in an empirical sense some people may like to tackle a problem in a more qualitative sense some people may even try to mix and match uh, some of these uh, methods uh, but to to then um, uh, formulate a set of research questions on that big uh, problem uh, and make sure that there are synergies across these different uh, aspects of the research question that you're working on with either different colleagues or uh, subsequently when you have your own PhD students or postdocs, uh, there, there is a level of synergy across these uh, elements of the problem that is being worked upon. And also to stretch out, uh, sometimes it's useful to stretch out beyond your own field uh, in order to get new ideas and new thoughts and new methods to, to address the big uh, problem. And, and being able to, uh, let's say, uh, take certain risks uh, with disciplines outside your own uh, in order to be able to make a contribution to some, some of these big issues, so to speak. So I think that is my advice um, uh, to an early career researcher. 
Thank you for tuning in to listen to Beyond BIM podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from our latest episodes, then you can visit Beyond BIM, which is available on SoundCloud and iTunes and all the other major podcast providers.